Hi, welcome to Waterstone Sermon Podcast. We're so glad that you've tuned in to join us today to study God's Word. Here at Waterstone, we exist to help people become like Jesus and live for others. What this means practically is that we gather together as one body to seek God's heart for justice, to serve together, and to connect with one another as the body of Christ. We hope that you'll join us for one of our weekend services soon. We gather on Saturday nights at 5 p.m. and on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We look forward to meeting you in person, and we hope that you enjoy today's sermon. Good morning, and welcome to Waterstone. We are so glad that you've chosen to worship with us this morning. Today, as we lift our voices in worship and praise together, we turn our attention to the testimony of the prophet Isaiah, who testifies to the holiness of God. In heaven and on earth, God is exalted and worthy of complete devotion because he is perfect in goodness and righteousness. It is a gift to know him and worship him together as one body united by his son, Jesus. Describing a vision from the Lord, Isaiah tells us, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. As we worship together today, we are reminded that we have not only joined together as one body united in Christ, but have joined in the eternal praise happening around the cross of throne of God in heaven and son of all creation here on earth. Uh, let's welcome in our online audience. I'm not sure we've welcomed them in yet this morning. Hi, everyone. Welcome. Welcome in. And we're always glad to have the classes of 2024, 2025, 2026, and 2027 with us here in the room this morning. You're welcome. We, and we all know we're going to be, especially after Paul's message last week, we are not going to ask you what you're going to do after high school. Just not going to do that. So it's good to see all of you. We're on a mission as a church to become like Jesus and live for others. And as we do that, pursue that hard, according to the Apostle John, we become like Jesus as now his body, life and light to the world. And so being light and life to the world is what in the Old Testament, the ancients called wisdom. We become the wisdom of God in a world that needs wisdom. And so, uh, as we think about that, in January, it's the season of Epiphany, the light where we, sh we are the life and light of the world. We thought it would be appropriate in the months of January to speak on how to be a wise person, the wisdom of life. So, the first week, we talked about the power of words, that a wise person knows how to use words well. And then last week, Paul led us in thinking that a wise person is one who knows how to share their faith with the generations. And now today, we're going to talk about how a wise person who's going to be life and light in the world knows how to navigate anger. Anger. We are made in the image of God and thus we have the capability of anger. So the question is not whether you are angry, whether you have anger. The question is, are you skilled with anger? 
And that's what we want to talk about in three movements so that you'll be able to track with me. One, we want to talk about the destructive power of anger because that's where the Proverbs have much to say. Then secondly, we want to talk about the source of anger. Where does anger come from within us? And especially, how does that anger within us, how should we say, go bad? And then lastly, we want to talk about how to heal our anger and some of the steps practically we can take to heal anger. Sound good? Someone uh, was saying that, I always know, like after the introduction, Larry, that uh, whenever you're, you're getting ready to jump into the scriptures, you always say something like, ready, break, like we're in a huddle together. So, okay, here we are. Proverbs 19, anger can be destructive. A hot-tempered person must pay the penalty. Rescue them, and you will have to do it again. Hot, hot, hot. It's the Hebrew word for fire or sun. We here in Colorado know a little bit about fire. We know it's good for heat, light, cooking, melting. We know that one spark of it keeps the car moving, and one spark of it gives you a hot shower in the morning. We know it's really, really good. We also here in Colorado know that just one spark of misplaced fire, mistimed fire, can lead to an event that you'll read about in the newspapers for weeks and weeks and weeks. It's power. Let's talk about how destructive anger can be. First, it's destructive to our health. Proverbs chapter 14, whoever is patient, we're going to learn uh, from these proverbs that word patient literally means slow to anger, and it's a Hebrew parallelism contrasting with quick-tempered. So whoever is slow-angered has great understanding, but one who is quick-tempered displays folly. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but here it is, jealousy, that is a certain kind of emotional anger, what's, what's it say? Rots the bones. It's detrimental to our health. Anger is the emotion that's most detrimental to our health. I don't think we need to spend a lot of time on this, do we? I think you can go and read in the internet because everything on the internet is true. And <laughs> but you will, from some reputable places and academic journals, discover that anger is one of the leading causes of high blood pressure, heart disease, hypertension, depression, anxiety, fatigue, and sleeplessness, to name a few. It's destructive. Secondly, anger is destructive to relationships. We go to Proverbs 15, 18. We read, a hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but the one who is patient calms a quarrel. When we were two weeks ago talking about the power of words, we looked at one of those Proverbs that said, sometimes words are like swords, and you put them into a person, and you can pull the sword out, but what stays? The wound. We know that the wounds, words said in anger, moods weaponized, those things can stay for a long, long time. Thirdly, we know that anger can be destructive because it's uh, destructive to our mind. We go back to Proverbs 14. Whoever is slow angered has great understanding, but one who is quick tempered displays what? Have you ever gotten angry and done something you regret? And then you say afterwards, man, I, I, I was such a fool. 
Do you know why you're saying that? Because you were such a fool. (laughs) Anger, the Hebrew word is a picture of eyes that are squinted. You're so like emotionally focused on whatever that is that's triggered your anger that you lose all perspective of what's around you. And you end up doing things that hurt your body, that, that hurt your relationships, and that really make you le- mental. One of my favorite pictures of this was uh, by an author named Mary Gordon. And uh, I think this captures how destructive anger can be, a moment of anger. Several years ago in the New York Times book review, Mary Gordon wrote this piece. She wrote a piece on anger, and she used herself as an example. One hot August afternoon, she, Mary Gordon, was in the kitchen preparing dinner for 10. Although the house was full of people, no one offered to help her chop, stir, or set the table. She was stewing in her own juices when her two small children and her 78-year-old mother insisted that she stop preparations and take them swimming. They then positioned themselves in the car, honking the horn and shouting her name out of the window so all the neighbors could hear, reminding her that she had promised to take them swimming at the pond. That, Gordon said, was when she lost it. She flew outside and jumped on the hood of the car. She pounded on the windshield. She told her mother and her children that she was never, ever going to take them anywhere, and none of them was ever going to have one friend in any house of hers until the hour of their death, which she said she hoped was soon. (laughs) Then the frightening thing happened. I became a huge bird, she said, a carrion crow. My legs became hard stalks. My eyes were sharp and vicious. I developed a murderous beak. Greasy black feathers took the place of my arms. I flapped and flapped. I blotted out the sun with my flapping. Even after she had been forced off the hood of the car, it took her a while to come back to herself. And when she did, she was appalled because she realized that she had definitely frightened her children. Her son said to her, I was scared because I didn't know who you were. The very last line of Mary Gordon's article, sin makes the sinner unrecognizable. Anger is destructive to our health, to relationships, to our mind, and lastly, it's it's destructive to our will. If we, again, go back to uh, Proverbs 19, The hot-tempered person must pay the penalty. That is, they carry the consequences in themselves. Rescue them, and you will have to do it again. And this time, I want you to mentally underline the word again, again, again. Human neurobiology tells us that when a person gets angry, there's an adrenaline load that floods the brain, and the body becomes like hyper and super more powered to endure whatever the situation is. And let's just say that can be again and again. It's addictive. It breaks down our will. When that happens, we lean on it more and more and more. That's how some of us survived our childhood. That's how some of us continue to survive stress 
and, and challenge and, and, and the burdens that we carry is often from that adrenaline load of anger. And what's really, really dangerous, and I think we know this, but I'm going to say it, is when that continues unchecked, that's when it can veer into what we call abuse. Abuse is when in a relationship, one person attempts to control, intimidate, or threaten another person. And it's not always physical. If it's yelling, if it's threatening, if it's name calling, if it's throwing things, if it's punching things, it's wrong. And it's sin. And it has to stop. And if you're the perpetrator, you need to get help. Or you need to get out. Or both. And if you're on the receiving end, you need to get help. Or you need to get out. Or both. Anger's destructive. A wise person knows that anger is destructive. And so, how do we navigate it? How do we get skilled with anger? Well, it starts with the source. Let's talk about where anger comes from. We go to Proverbs 16, the source of anger. Better is a slow, angered person than a warrior. One with self-control than one who takes a city. Slow, angered person. First, I want to pull off here and say the goal of anger is not no anger. And the goal of anger is not blow anger, blow up anger. The goal of anger is slow anger. Reasoned, strategized purposeful, thoughtful anger, slow anger. The Hebrew word, again, the Hebrew is such a picturesque language, and the Hebrew word for slow angered here is long nose. So by the time it gets from your brain to your nostrils flaring, the longer the better. Can I get an amen from big nose people in the room here? Yeah. Slow anger is the goal. And I want to underline this. Not no anger and not blow up anger. Slow anger is the goal. Where does that come from? That, where does that even language come from? Where does anger come from? Right here. Exodus 34, verse 6. Moses you know, they're in the, the desert. Moses needs uh, some leadership development. And he asks God, God, like, who are you? Tell me who you are. Like, give me like a one-sentence statement. Here's the Lord. Show me your glory. Who are you? And God passes in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, 
the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Slow to anger. And we now, being made in God's image, should and must be slow to anger. That's the goal. And that's how we understand anger. And so, now, we moderns, we're not all that comfortable with this kind of language, are we? We don't like to think of an angry God. Well, my gentle pushback would simply be this. If you don't have an angry God, you don't have a loving God. If you've never been angry at anything, you've never truly loved anything. God loves the world and He wants the world to know it. And so sometimes what that means is that God gets angry about what's going on in His world. And like any good parent, He's going to do something. He's going to say something. Because anger, listen, healthy, good, slow anger is an essential part of love. The best one paragraph I've read on this comes from a writer named Rebecca Pippert, and she described it this way. Think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is, and the final form of hate is indifference. If I, a flawed, narcissistic, sinful woman, can feel this much pain and anger over someone's condition, how much more a morally perfect God who made them? God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but His settled opposition to the cancer of sin, which is eating out the insides of the human race He loves with His whole being. You say, okay, Larry, I'm tracking with you a bit. I need a little more. Keep convincing. What I would say is this. Let's talk about Jesus. We have this picture of Jesus, totally loving person, right? And a totally loving person never gets angry, right? John chapter 2. And by the way, this happens at the beginning of his ministry and the end of his ministry. He walks into the temple, the place, the house of prayer, the place where people meet God. And there he's expecting to find, you know, the Torah being read and all the worship of the ancient testament. But what does he find when he walks in? He finds all these booths set up and people selling their goods and their wares. He finds that the religion of his time and day has been corrupted with power and money. And what does he do? He goes, oh well, I kind of knew it would happen. Is that what he does? He gets torched. Torqued. Whatever word with a T you want to put in there. He starts flipping, turning tables over. And these weren't plastic Tupperware tables. These are planks of wood kind of tables. And he runs through, and people like, 
don't know what to do with this angry, loving Jesus. Mark chapter 3, a man walks into a speaking engagement Jesus has, and he can see he has a crippled arm. But Jesus knows that all of his pastors are in that room, and the only thing they're thinking is not compassion for the, the, uh, the man who has crippled. He says, they're thinking, is Jesus going to heal on the Sabbath and break the law? And Jesus, the text said, is angered. It's the Greek word for nostrils. And what does he do? Kind of looking at them, he tells the man with the, the injured arm, stick out your arm. And when he sticks it out, it's healed. It's a class of miracles we like to call the anger miracles. He, in love, motivated by anger, heals this man. That happens more than once in the Gospels. We could talk about John chapter 11 when Jesus, the primary motivation that Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb was love, but it was anger love. It says his nostrils were flaring again and he called out Lazarus come forth because he was angry at what death, sin, and evil have done to a good and beautiful creation. He calls Lazarus from the dead in anger. Jesus gets angry. You say, okay, Larry, I'm with you. But what about, like, uh, how is this supposed to be part of our spiritual diet? Glad you asked. Ephesians 4. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. It's a relatively weak translation. It's actually an imperative verb, the first uh, phrase. In your anger should better be translated be angry and do not sin. In other words, there should be, if we are healthy in our spiritual life, anger. There should be places of anger in our pursuit of God. As we, as light and life for the world, the world should see some anger in us. The world should see that we hate the things God hates. The world should see that we are willing to defend with our anger the things God loves and that we should love. The world should see our anger. But the question is, and why we're uncomfortable, why maybe even they translate it this way, is, is we're not always like, yeah, but you know, I, I'm not comfortable with anger. Well, I think some of that has helped when we understand how anger goes bad. How does our anger go bad and become something that ends up in the Proverbs with the word hot and quick around it? It goes bad because of Augustine, not because of Augustine, but because of what Augustine said as he explained human emotions. Augustine said that in human emotions since the fall, what happens is our emotions, our loves become disordered. So, Augustine explained it this way. The human heart is made to love. We love. We cannot not love. We're always loving. And so, the question is not, are we going to love something? The question is, what are we loving as the superlative, as the highest place? Because whatever that highest placed love is governs all the other loves of our life. 
And so Augustine, of course, this makes sense to us. If God is in that place, the highest love of our life, then other things fall into their ordered place, and even anger. And we can have an ordered anger that uses anger the way Jesus and God used and demonstrated anger. But what happens is our loves become disordered. And we don't have God on the top shelf anymore. We have something else. And here's the hard part. It's usually a good thing. Family, money, career, sex, all these things God made and invented and wants us to have in our lives, they're good things, but we turn good things into ultimate things. And then we expect that good thing as an ultimate thing to be to us what God should be to us to satisfy our heart, to give us our loves and our hopes and our joys and our pleasures and our significances and our security. We expect those things, family, sex, money, career, to give us those things. Well, they're not God. And so when we don't get enough of them or when we get them and get all of them, but it's not enough, what happens? Disordered love leads to disordered anger. Anger. So, for instance, it's not wrong to care about our name and reputation. God made us and wants to give us identity. And so it's a good thing to, to seek to have a good name and to have a good reputation. But what happens when those things aren't done under God's leadership, but we just put them up there and we say, I'm going to make a name for myself, whether it's through work, whether it's through sports, whether it's through you know, all the things that I could put in there. I, I want a good name and reputation. That's my life. What happens when we're in a meeting and someone overlooks us and we don't get the acknowledgement? Darn it, we know we should get what happens when someone says something and it's just a cringe, just a little push against my reputation? Disordered anger comes from disordered love. You know where I've seen it? Because I've seen it in myself. But I see it out there too. I'm not pointing at any, I'm pointing up, okay? I've seen it and I've done it when parents are out in public with their kids and their kids do what kids do. They misbehave. And because it's in public and because our name and reputation means so much for us, but our kids right now are acting like they're gonna end up in orange jumpsuits. <laughs> Not really, that's usually a minor offense. It's a minor offense. But because we care so much of what other people think of us as parents, we drop the hammer. I mean, we, we call them out, we tear them down, we yell because we want parents or other parents to say, oh man, they're, they know how to discipline their kids. That's a tough thing, folks. Who's in charge at that moment? And what's the love of that moment? Or let me ask it this way, if I can bring it a little more personal to, to all of us. Why is it at times that just a, a personal snub from someone can make us more angry and upset than what's going on in the Ukraine? 
or in Gaza? Why? I mean, one personal snub that in a year from now you probably won't remember, and certainly in all eternity it's going to be like nothing. But why in the moment are you like so explosively angry about that? And whether you're an eruptor or whether you're a you know, withdrawer, you just get angry about that. And it's one small snub. Why? Because disordered love produces disordered anger. And when that is happening, it's not your kingdom come, your will be done. It's my kingdom come, my will be done. Now that I've duly depressed us all, <laughs> how do we heal our anger? How do we take a look at that and how do we start working on it? Let me suggest three things. First, some of us, we need to admit it. Look at Proverbs 19 again. A hot-tempered person must pay the penalty, rescue them, and you will have to do it again. Did you notice what's interesting about this verse is who is it addressed to? It's not addressed to the hot-tempered person. Who's it addressed to? The one who lives with the hot-tempered person. The, one, the friend, the family member. It's addressed to the one who has to help them. Why? Because when you're a hot-tempered person, you can't see it. You cannot see how your anger is infiltrating every area of your life. You cannot see the damage it's doing. You don't even realize that half the time you're an angry person. So one of the things some of us in this room need to do in this moment is think, am I an angry person? Because when you're angry, you're not seeing it. Am I an angry person? Let me, let me take it one step further. For some of us, some of the conversations that need to be had in our families here and in our marriages and in our friendships here and in our work environments, we need to be asking people we trust here, here's the gutsy move, but you need to ask, am I an angry person? And then this can come into play, Proverbs 27. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Oh, how I hate those verses. I, I'm an internal processor. I do not like conflict. My God often is people's approval and people's praise. And anything like this, man, uh, I don't sleep for weeks if I know I have to have a conversation with someone that's going to be open rebuke or a wound. It's the hardest thing for me to do. But after 61 years of passive-aggressive behavior. This has never been more important for me. And it's worth doing it because what I've discovered is after you've had a conflict with a person and it's handled well, that relationship goes to places you've never thought possible in terms of intimacy, forgiveness, and strength. Are there some of us here that need to admit our anger and even bring a trusted friend into that conversation? Second thing, we need to analyze our anger. Anger, you know, should be in our lives, but it should often play like a dashboard light on your car. Like something's wrong. You need to look under the hood. That's 
one of the, the, the beauties, the blessings of anger. If you look at Proverbs, I think it's 24 and 20, do not say, I'll do to them as they have done to me, I'll pay them back. And you can read the second verse. That, I, I'm just interested in that. Do not say. It's like we are to be having a conversation in our head, right? We're to be self-talking about our anger, self-talking so that we can analyze and question our anger. So if we sense that we have at times been, you know, not skillful with our anger, one of the things we need to do is ask why, why, what's going on with this particular issue that every time I'm around it, I'm angry. So let me illustrate. For many years at Waterstone, we had a leadership class and uh, what we would do is have a session in that leadership. I see some of the faces of you out there who uh, survived this, and I'm sorry to bring up a bad memory that you went through, but uh, we, we had a, cl a class called uh, The Emotional Life of a Leader. That was one of the sessions, and we brought in a well-known counselor here in town named Harvey Powers. And Harvey Powers would talk us through all the emotional life and flow of a leader. And some of you in the class might remember that his most famous illustration from that talk was called the cheese sandwich. And if you remember the cheese sandwich, Harvey would tell it like this. One time a couple came, they sat down in his office, and they needed help. And Harv, as he often does, began the session this way. What brings you in today? And they both said, a cheese sandwich. <laughs> And Harv said, tell me more. <laughs> and what had happened you know, a, a few weeks back was they were all before school, getting ready to get out of the house. It was the husband's turn to take the kids to school, and then he had a meeting at work. He was helping with the lunches, and he goes, and he says, kids, what do you want for lunch today? And they go, cheese sandwich. And as soon as they said that, from the other part of the house, the husband hears the voice of his wife saying, don't forget to put mayonnaise on both of the slices of bread. Well, the volcano erupted. The husband, it just torqued him. And he yells back, you don't even trust me to make my own kids a cheese sandwich. Well, the other volcano erupted. And she yells from the other side of the house, yeah, and the only time you offer to help with the kids is when you're taking them and you have a meeting. You never help otherwise. And Harv puts his hands together and says, now we have something to work on. <laughs> this is not about a cheese sandwich. This is what's underneath that cheese sandwich. All of us, when we're in seasons of anger, I hope from now on, what you think the, by the Holy Spirit's prompting is, what's beneath the cheese sandwich? What's really going on here? Why am I so angry? Which leads to the third thing. So you admit it, you analyze it, and then lastly, you take action. Look at Proverbs 25. This is a scary verse. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Let me just say one quick thing about the burning coals piece. Um, again, Augustine said that the best way to meet hostility and make them red in the face with shame is through kindness. And we think that's a little bit about, so it's not actually dumping your charcoal grill on another person's head. It's about the best solution to making someone who's hurt you feel even worse is love. 
and kindness. But notice, in the ancient world, all the wisdom literature of that day was about stoicism. It was about absorbing the hurt, but ending the relationship and moving on. There was no sense of active love. It was all passive, just withdraw. Notice that the people of God being light and life in a culture, it's more than just absorbing the cost. It's actually going to your enemy and doing this, blessing them, loving them, doing what's best for them. Now, that's a big word. We don't have time to, we can talk offline on some of that, but doing best does not mean a relationship necessarily. It does not mean for, all, for certain forgetting what happened. It does not mean going on as if nothing. No, doing what's best for them may mean kicking them out. It may mean ending the relationship. The best is to be decided by the love. But there needs to be an active pursuit of forgiveness and doing what's best for the other person. And you say, how in the world, how in the world can we do that? Okay, if you're saying the way to navigate and become skillful with anger is to admit it, to analyze it, okay, I get that. But now you're saying it's not just to forget it and withdraw, it's to actually pursue the person who's hurt you with doing what's best for them? Oh, wow. I don't know. Where does that come from? Will Willimon was for many years the dean of the chapel at Duke University. And uh, there he, he garnered many friends from around the world. That's a privileged kind of place to do ministry. And one of those closest friends while he was dean of the chapel was an Irish woman who came actually later in life did her doctoral studies at Duke. When Will heard her story, he was amazed and impressed. Her story was back in the 70s during the uh, racial and religious and sometimes ethnic violence that was happening in Belfast and places of Ireland, Sunday, Sunday Bloody Sunday. There was, uh, she lived there and she was married to a man. They were both very young. But because her husband was on a certain side, some so-called revolutionaries broke into their house at night and murdered him in cold blood. Will asked, what did you do? I mean, here you are now. You're like teaching at Duke University on peace and love. How did you get from there to here? She continued with the story. She said, in that moment, as I stood over the dead body of my husband, the only thing I could think to do was pray. And the only prayer I could muster was the Lord's prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation. And in that moment, she knew she would have to pray that prayer every day, sometimes every hour, for the rest of her life to that day. That is how she has learned to live with peace and love in her heart. As Will Willimon thought about it more and more, he thought, yeah, but boy, 
That is so, so hard. But as he writes in this last chapter of his book on the seven deadly sins, his chapter on anger, it ends this way. Then I came to realize that I too knew a man who'd been murdered in cold blood by so-called revolutionaries. And I know that as he died his last breath, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And Will says, I knew in that moment, as one who put him there, that there, on the cross, with his words, I too can learn to forgive. There, when God in his righteous anger because he loved the world, determined to destroy sin, but not the sinner, and instead give the sinner all they need for life. There, we too can learn to navigate our anger and learn to forgive. My friends, following Jesus, we will all die forgiven. The question is, will we die forgiving? Let's pray. Lord, oh. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes the gospel's heavy. Sometimes it presses down in our hearts and squeezes things out. Irritants, wounds from our childhood, people who've mistreated us, the most painful, painful places. The gospel wants to squeeze out some of that and start to fill up with forgiveness. But it's so hard. Pray for everyone in this room that we'd be life and light in this world because we really work at navigating our anger. Make our anger more loving and righteous. Make it less prideful. Make it less about ourselves. And Lord, in those places where there's relationships that need to at least ask the question, what does forgiveness look like? Please, Lord, give us wisdom and give us a good counselor, and give us good friend. And Lord, show us how you want to heal those wounds. Lord, we just want to come to you now in this moment, really hard message, really heavy moment, and just say, our heart's yours. We are yours, and we surrender. We surrender our all to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.